Let's look to the Lord in prayer. So, Father, we're looking at a passage in time, extraordinary days. And for those of us that ponder the significance of all that's been occurring in the, in the current scenario of life, these seem like extraordinary days. But we have a sovereign God who is in control of all the days, the ordinary and the extraordinary. They're all part of your plan, guided by your purpose to achieve your goals for humanity and bring glory to your name. So as we're trying to figure out, Father, the rhythms of life, and while there are going to be those that are tuning in now and they're pondering the purpose of life, the reasons for existence, why we're here and why is, are things happening the way they're happening, speak to those hearts. To the one who might be viewing himself or herself as a religious, and for the one who views himself or herself as a secularist, but if they examine their hearts carefully, what they do share in common is that it's very possible they do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Bring truth into that soul. For all that know you, for all who love you, enlarge our understanding, stretch our souls to be able to take in still more truth of your word. These moments count. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. Even in this live stream now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus. Him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Our minds go back to a, a somewhat familiar story from the past couple of years. We're back to the story of Andrew Brunson and the time in which he was imprisoned in Turkey for two years on false terrorism charges. And during that time, there was a worldwide prayer movement unfolding. When he was subsequently interviewed with regard to his release from captivity, he was asked to look back over his experience. It's these words that still strike a chord in my soul. We have no regrets, he says of himself and his wife. We would do it all over again. Though the grueling challenge caused them to miss their daughter's wedding and forced them to leave their adopted country, Turkey, likely for good. It's the following words that seize my thoughts. Quote, the Lord was accomplishing more in my imprisonment than in me being free. Unquote. The Lord was accomplishing more in my imprisonment than in me being free. 
There are experiences that we encounter in life, the hardships of life, the hurts of life, the losses of life, that can easily cause us to begin to wonder why the restrictions upon life. But we have to bear in mind that in the midst of the restrictions being placed upon life, there is the tremendous release of the gospel of life. And while Peter now is experiencing extraordinary restrictions, the gospel is offering an extraordinary release. It's not being held within the captivities of the prison. It's now taking captive the souls of humanity. But there is Peter. Peter's in prison. But though in prison, what you and I find at this point is that there's a prayer movement unfolding. And just like on Thursday night, the nation will be gathering together for prayer, and we're going to be interceding, asking for God to be intervening. I want to take those thoughts this morning now and to flush them out with you. God is sovereign in the midst of the circumstances of life. He's got a purpose for all of life. What I want to do in this passage is to draw out four significant avenues by which God's purpose is unfolding. And the first comes out of verse 1 down through verse 5, that in hard times, and you can click on and follow along with the outline, in hard times, I want you to note, first of all, how God's sovereign purposes unfold through the earnest prayers that he hears. Through the earnest prayers that he hears. Prayer and God's sovereignty are not contradictory to one another. Prayer is woven into the fabric of God's sovereign purposes for the way in which he wants to execute his strategies in a timely way for timeless truths. You pick it up now in verse 1. And about that time, you see how relevant Luke is to his thinking. He wants to always be thinking about timely matters. So he starts about that time. Here the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now when you get to verse 2 at this point, you're going to be struck by what's taking place. But first of all, you've got to get your hands on. You've got to be able to get a sense of this one known as Herod. Who is he? Well, Herod Agrippa the first is the Herod now. He's part of what's known as the Herodian dynasty. Uh, he had been friends in earlier days with uh, Caligula in Rome. And furthermore, what we see here is that this was an individual that had been able to embrace a kingdom that had previously been overseen by his grandfather, Herod the Great. And you can read about Herod the Great in the opening chapters of the Gospels. Now, he was both Jewish and Edomian, Jew, and also people of Edom. And what's also interesting to me is that he was very pro-Pharisee. He, he would listen carefully to that aspect of Judaism. They had his ear. 
And so now you might be pondering that if you clicked on to the picture of him at this point. So keep that in your mind that here's an individual now that will be shaped to some degree by what I'll call the lowercase authorities, the Pharisees. They're trying to get the upper hand. So now they feel threatened because of the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what do they do now to try to restrain this forward movement of the presentation of Jesus as Messiah? They go after the leadership. So first of all, in verse 2, notice with me that he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. He utilized an unbiblical form of capital punishment. And furthermore, in verse 3, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now take a step back now and say to yourself, I've experienced loss in my life. Let's say you've had a loved one who has passed away due to cancer or whatever. And yet you've seen someone else, maybe in your broader circles, who seems to have recovered from cancer. And you're trying to fit this in your mindset as to how both can be. Well, for the Christians that were found in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians, on one hand, they are looking at James' life now lost. But is he? No, he simply moved through that doorway into the presence of the Lord. The resurrected Savior gives you and me a different take upon death than the secularist might hold. This is an open door not a locked door. And so that trio of Peter, James, and John, they're now missing James. But Peter is still alive to be incarcerated, and John will eventually be sent off to the Isle of Patmos, a threat to the emperor. And so here we find now that Peter evidently is awaiting that moment in time when he himself is going to be put to death. So they arrest him. It's during the days of unleavened bread. You're up to verse 4 now with me, aren't you? And so as you make your way up to verse 4, you and I have got to bear in mind at this point is that when you're reading about the time of the unleavened bread, it takes you back, doesn't it, to the time of Jesus' execution in Luke chapter 22, verse 7. Um, Peter now is, seems to be in similar circumstances. Is he about to await the time when he himself will lose his life? Is he going to be placed in the hands now of public opinion? They seized him in verse 4 and put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Typically, in Roman strategies then, you would have four sets of guards. And these guards would take four-hour shifts. There would be 16 in total. And here he is now, and it seems to Agrippa to be the case where, well, Agrippa seems to have the upper hand. He seems to have ultimate authority, uppercase authority. He is beginning to squelch the influence of the leaders by having James put to death and Peter now imprisoned. And he is now 
He is between these soldiers who are guarding him. Uh, they're intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Does that sound familiar? And where is God in the midst of all this? And how do you understand this? My mind goes back to something that I was reading uh, with regard to Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Extraordinary stories of the way in which Solzhenitsyn goes about describing the Gulag Archipelago in, in the old Soviet Union and the ways in which people would stand up to the regime. There's a particular book, probably the most well-read book of his, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. And in this account, Denisovich finds himself talking to this man who seems to know Jesus Christ as Lord, as Savior, as the one who, who has a tremendous personal relationship with God, who understands something about the purposes of this world. And there are certain phrases and thoughts that stand out all this taking place because Solzhenitsyn himself was incarcerated for eight years during the midst of the Soviet Union's crackdown. Some phrases stand out in the book. I was looking at it again, even just of last night. A phrase such as, can a man who's warm understand one who is freezing? Can the one who's hurting, in other words, be understood by the one who seems to have everything going his way? Then there is this understatement that reaches its climax in the final lines, quote, just one of 3,653 days of his sentence. The extra three were for leap year. But it's Alyashka, the believer, who sees God's purpose in the midst of the imprisonment. In this climactic conversation in the novel, he explains biblical faith to Ivan. Alyashka is the only person in this who can give a positive, purposeful explanation to the prison experience with these words, quote, Be glad you are in prison. Here you have time to think about your soul, quote unquote. In this era of coronavirus, people have time to think about their souls. My son, one of my sons, who is a physician outside New York City, was just texting me even as of last night explaining the extraordinary and extreme issues that are being faced by the dense population base in that region, in the ICU, in fact, that he himself is a physician um, ministering in. The extremes of life. And Jesus entered into the extreme of life when he came to die for your sins, my sins. So how then do people respond to all this? 
where there is, seems to be this sense of restriction upon life, what we have to see at the same time is there's this powerful release through the working of the Holy Spirit of gospel penetration that goes forth. So Peter was kept in prison. Circle the word but. But. Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. The word earnest is the very same word which was used to describe Jesus Christ who was stretched out on the ground in the setting of Gethsemane. In fact, the word itself carries with the idea to be stretched out. Now when we gather for prayer in our various settings Thursday night, there has to be this sense of earnestness, you see. We are stretched out. Our souls are being stretched out before God because it seems as though the extremes of life have got a lot of people stretched out. Maybe even stretched out of shape, so to speak. And meanwhile, Agrippa thinks he's got everything under control. But don't forget who has uppercase authority. Agrippa has lowercase authority. And you can't confuse the Agrippas of this world with God. Out of New York City, Dr. Mitch Glaser, Chosen People Ministries. We closed the Chosen People Ministries New York headquarters and Brooklyn offices. We're working remotely to try to keep our staff healthy and in compliance with the mandated shutdowns. Our administrative staff of more than 25 people meet virtually by Zoom for prayer every morning. And these prayer gatherings enable us to stay connected spiritually through prayer and worship. And as a result, we are more unified than ever, and all of our administrative systems are working well. We praise God. However, I noticed in our prayer time this week that more and more of us know someone who has the virus and a few who have died. And at this moment, my hometown is a battlefield similar to what we experienced during 9-11. Yet, yet, in spite of the suffering that comes from the disease, isolation, economic uncertainty, and a massive shift in the way we live, I know that God is still in control. What a powerful statement from Dr. Mitch Glaser. Right there in the midst of the battlefield of life itself. In hard times, now you want to personalize this. I want you to note how God's sovereign purposes unfold, first of all, through the earnest prayers he hears. Are you stretched out in your prayers before God? Now, there's a second avenue I want you to see here. God's sovereign purposes are unfolding not only through the earnest prayers he hears in verse 1 through 5, but furthermore, through the timely ways he works. Through the timely ways that he works. You're up now to verse 6. And when Herod was to bring him out on that very night, that very night, 
Peter was sleeping. Now he's in what was known as, most likely, the Antonio Fortress. And you've been able to click onto that, most likely. And you're able to see not only what a model of the fortress looked like, but furthermore, its position to the Temple Mount and Christ's crucifixion point. And you're pondering the close proximity of all these things. And there's Peter, so close to it all, yet so far from it all. And he now, imprisoned, is sleeping. How do you go about sleeping in times like those? It's a deep sleep. I think the answer is he went to MyPillow.com where he was guaranteed a good night's sleep. Well, now, he's between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door, and they're guarding the prison, you see. Now, outwardly, it looks as though there's no way out. But the question is not, is there no way out? The question is, who gets in? In verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. What I want you to see is the first of two times in which this word struck is used. He struck Peter on the side. Woke him. And he's saying, get up quickly. There's a timeliness to all this. The chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. You're up to verse 9 now at this point. And here we find that this angel is beginning to guide him out. And you're struck with the way in which this angel is at work, directing as well as protecting. And you're thinking about this whole matter. Luke seems to have a strong interest as a physician, interestingly enough, in angels. As did a neurologist by the name of Dr. S.W. Mitchell. He was practicing medicine in Philadelphia. And the writer tells us that after one very tiring day, he retired early until he was awakened by a persistent knocking at the door. It was a little girl, poorly dressed, deeply upset. She told him that her mother was sick, needed his help. And even though it was bitterly cold, snowing outside, and he himself was bone-tired after a long day of treating patients. He dressed and followed the girl. Found the mother desperately ill with pneumonia. After treating her, he complimented the sick woman and on her daughter's persistent courage. And the woman gave him a strange look, you see, and said, My daughter passed away a month ago. Her shoes and coat are in the closet. Dr. Mitchell went to the closet and opened the door. And there hung the very coat worn by the little girl 
who had been at his front door. The coat was warm and dry and could not possibly have been out in the wintry night. How do you explain such things? I remember reading the book Miracles by C.S. Lewis. There's a particular quote that stands out. Miracles are a retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. But God gives us insight, not merely eyesight, to be able to ponder what it is that he's doing. Now, Peter's got to be grappling with what is it that God is doing. When well, verse 9, he went out, went out and followed him, didn't he? And as he went out and followed him, he did not know what was being done by the angel. It was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. He just hadn't had enough coffee, I guess, before he came to. You're up to verse 10. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate. The Iron Gate. You see now, we're still talking about that, about that fortress, aren't we? And so when they came to the Iron Gate, leading into the city, it opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Notice again, timing words. Now, the angel immediately leaves, and so purpose will serve. Now, the people are praying for intervention. They're involved in intercession. If you clicked on the, the various pictures associated with this outline, you'll be able to see St. Stephen's Gate, which today, the old city of Jerusalem, will look down upon the setting in which this fortress would have been found. So you're pondering this, you're thinking about this, and you're trying to figure out how does this work with the way in which we go about living our lives today. Let's review. In hard times, note with me how God's sovereign purposes unfold, first of all, in verses 1 through 5, through the earnest prayers he hears, and second of all, through the timely ways he works. Now, God's timely ways and your timely ways may not necessarily be in sync, but that's because we haven't been able to see the full scheme of things in the way in which life is unfolding. But now there's a third avenue that begins to develop for us. That in hard times, I want you to note furthermore with me how God's sovereign purposes unfold here through the opposite reactions that he produces. When God steps in, believers will respond one way. Unbelievers will respond the opposite way. Verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house, the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. So now, this house evidently was setting in which people were somewhat well off. 
perhaps a gated type community, secure. John Mark's mother, owner of the house, don't know anything at this point about his father. It's also possible that Mary was the sister to Barnabas, which would have then meant that Barnabas would have been the been the uncle to John Mark, which would explain some things a little further along the way in the book of Acts. But meanwhile, meanwhile, you're up to verse 13, aren't you? And there's Peter. And he knocks at the door of the gateway. Now, a servant girl arrives on the scene here in verse 13. Her name is Rhoda. It comes from a word that simply means rose. If you've ever presented a rose to someone or received a rose from someone, Rhoda would have nodded her head because that's her name here. She comes to the, this gate, answers, and she recognizes Peter's voice. What does that tell you? It means that, that Peter would have probably been a, a regular visitor to this house. They would have provided hospitality to perhaps Peter, James, and John and the likes. She recognizes his voice. But you see, in her joy, she didn't open the gate. She ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it's so. They kept saying, it's his angel. And there's Peter in verse 16, and he continues knocking. He's got an easier time breaking out of a prison cell than breaking into a prayer gathering. Well, this poor guy, he's knocking, and he's wondering, when are they going to let me in, you see, because Herod's going to be looking the moment they find that I'm not here, and they begin to grapple with the realities of the moment. He needs to feel security. So he knocks and he knocks. And when they opened, they saw him. They're amazed. Hit the pause button. So often in our prayer lives, we lay out the three aspects of answered prayer. Sometimes God says no. Sometimes God says wait. But have you ever noticed how shocked Christians are when sometimes God says yes? Here's a situation where God has said yes. The question is, if they had been praying for James, why would God have said no to that request? And if they're praying for Peter, why would he say yes to this request? God's sovereign purposes take all these matters of life and death into his hands. And he weaves them together in such a powerful way that you and I are able to better understand subsequently as we look back on why God did what he did. But in some cases, we're not going to fully grasp the significance of this, this side, this side of eternity. Peter's now in the room. He motions to them with his hand, be silent. And he describes to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And you say, but Gary, I thought James just lost his life. This is a different James. 
This is the younger brother of Jesus Christ who had become a very extraordinary leader within the church among the Christian Jews of Jerusalem. So now Peter wants this story to be told because there's going to be a lot of fear and tension among the people as to who's next. He wants to tell them the story, God is sovereign, Agrippa is not. Don't confuse lowercase authority with uppercase authority. In her best-selling book, The Hiding Place, Corey Ten Boom told the story, you might remember it, times in Holland during the German invasion. One particular night, she was tossing restlessly in her bed, warplanes growling overhead, shattering the blackness of the night with their fiery artillery, you see. Well, after a while, she heard her sister downstairs in the kitchen, couldn't sleep, went down for a cup of tea. They talked until the night was still again. The sound of the fighters died away. Explosions had ripped nearby. All is quiet now. But stumbling through the darkness of her room, Miss Tenboom reached out to pat her pillow before lying down, and now the rest of the story as I read it. Suddenly, she felt something sharp cutting her hand. It was a jagged piece of metal, ten inches long. She cried out for her sister, raced down the stairs with shrapnel shod in her hand. <coughs> and while her sister Betsy bandaged her and kept saying, on your pillow, Corey responded, ah, oh, Betsy, if I had not heard you in the kitchen, to which her godly sister replied, quote, don't say it, Corey. There are no ifs in God's world. The center of his will is our safety. Unquote. The center of his will is your safety. Are you in the center of his will? Don't live out on the periphery. Get in the center. Peter's in the center. Now, you've seen the reaction on one hand of the believers. Notice the reaction now of Agrippa. When day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death, which was typical in the Roman Empire, you see, that those that oversee the prisons, well, they were responsible to make certain that the prisoners were secure in their cells. And if they got loose, well, the jailer would lose his life. This would have been the second of three prison escapes listed in the book of Acts among God's people. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there, Caesarea. So now, what have we got so far here? What we see here are three avenues thus far. Hard times, God's sovereign purposes are being unfolded, how? Number one, through the earnest prayers that he hears in one through five. 
Second of all, through the timely ways that he works, found in verse 6 through 11. Thirdly, through the opposite reactions he produces, joy on one hand, angst on the other hand, so to speak. But now fourthly, through the exclusive glory that he possesses. Now, as you begin with verse 20, you and I find here is that Herod's angry. And he's angry, furthermore, with the people of Tyre and Sidon. If you look at the, at the map that's found on the screen, if you were to check on that, you'd be able to see Tyre and Sidon. It's on the Mediterranean side. You can spot where Jerusalem is. Jerusalem had been his headquarters. Tyre and Sidon were part of Phoenicia. They came to him when he went up to Caesarea. And in one accord, they persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because their country depended upon the king's country for food. Now, bear this in mind, politically speaking. The one who controls the food supplies is the one who assumes he has the upper hand. You see that globally. You've seen that historically. But remember who has the uppercase, who has the lowercase, who has uppercase authority and who has lowercase authority. But at this point, Agrippa assumes that he has uppercase authority. Even though he's a religious man, he had ventured many a time into the temple, so Josephus would have told us. Religious, but unsaved. And now they're turning to him for food. You're up to verse 21. At 21 now at this point, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, delivered an oration to them. And notice what's going on. The people were shouting, the voice of a God not of a man. Now Herod the Great had been responsible for the rebuilding and the setting up of all things politically oriented in Caesarea. Remember Caesar and Caesarea, the same root word. And there's a picture you could click on that gives you a sense of the theater at Caesarea. So now the people have come together, and now in one accord, they're shouting, and they're shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Look what comes next. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down. Now in verse 7, didn't you notice with me that an angel of the Lord stood next to Peter, you see, in prison? A light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side, woke him and said, get up quickly. Connect that to verse 23. An angel of the Lord struck him down. Both strikes, same Greek word. One had to do with giving of life, protecting life, and the other is the taking of life. And Herod thought he would be taking the life of Peter, but God is preserving Peter. On the other hand, here's Agrippa, and he's assuming that he's protecting his life, and God's about to take it. In both cases, you've got a strike on your hands. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, 
And as Luke would point out, again, it's the angelic force involved here. And what is the reason for all this? The answer is found because he did not give God the glory. And so a parasitic matter comes into play here. If you've ever, ever studied parasitology, he was eaten by worms and breathed his last, you see. Well, the story is told that at the funeral of Louis XIV, great cathedral was packed with mourners. They're paying their final tribute to the king they'd considered to be great. The room was dark. There was one lone candle. It was illuminating the great casket that held the remains of the monarch. And at the appointed time, the one who was to get up to speak and to share God's word addressed all the clergy of France. And as he rose, he reached from the pulpit and snuffed out the one candle which had been there, put there, to symbolize the greatness of the king. And then from the darkness came just four words. God only is great. There are many comparable leaders in life who are seeking glory. But the incomparable God of the universe deserves glory. He did not give God the glory, and he was taken, he was eaten by the whims, parasitology, breathed his last. Don't miss what comes next. But the word of God increased and multiplied. You see, with this chapter began, Herod got the first word. As this chapter ends, God gets the last word. Herod had the initial say. God had the final say. The word of God increased, multiplied. And out of all this then, Barnabas and Saul, can you imagine Saul pondering how he had unleashed persecution at one point in his life and now saved by grace with Barnabas, returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And there's your fourth avenue through the exclusive glory that he, your God, possesses. This is how you understand God's purposes in hard times. So you put all that together, and then you can better appreciate how it is that uh, an Andrew Brunson, when he is being interviewed, is able to look back over his experience and be able to say, we had no regrets. We would do it all over again. The Lord was accomplishing more in my imprisonment than in me being free. And when you feel as though your life is being constricted, 
when it seems as though liberty is currently restricted. You've got a sovereign God who reigns. Let me close in prayer. Our Father, we're thanking you now for who you are. Our God, we're praising you now for how you work. Our God, what we see in the midst of all this is that in the midst of our time-bound experiences of life, you are the timeless God. When we are conscious of the restrictiveness of the days, we have the one who three days later was raised from the grave and is seated now at the right hand of the Father, granting us eternal life if we know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Lord, if there are any of those that have been watching, observing, processing today, they're looking at and processing, thinking through, evaluating the times in which we live, struggling with the restrictedness of life itself, breaking now to that self-made prison and allow them to be able to breathe the fresh air of true liberty that is found in a relationship with the sovereign God of the universe through Jesus Christ the risen Savior and Lord. For this, Father, we'll give you all the praise. We'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.